Welcome to The Pick List, the podcast for curious food industry minds. Every week, we bring you our pick of articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing in these extraordinary times. We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant, quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce. I'm Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show. Hi, Laura. How are you? Great, thank you. I'm feeling quite emotional, you know. It's week 14 of the pick list and I can't believe we've been doing this since the 8th of May every single week and it's absolutely flown by. I've, I've absolutely loved it and it's been great to hear from so many amazing guests and we've had some uh, phenomenal guests on over the uh, first season of the pick list and um, so many comments as well. So lucky to hear from our listeners and I'd like to say thank you to everyone that's listened to the pick list over the last 14 weeks. Uh, there's so many people that I chat to saying god I'm really loving your podcast so it's really endearing to know that there's uh, and we know that from the stats anyway but there is people out there listening to us <laughs> and wanting to know about the uh, the grocery market which is great so um, as I say we're about to take a, a break now and finishing season one and we'll be back on the 18th of September so I'd like to say we're like Holly Willoughby and Philip Schofield taking a break from uh, this morning but uh, probably without the exotic at holiday homes uh tell me what you're going to be doing over the uh, summer break Holly Willoughby and Philip Schofield is definitely who I have in mind or who I try to channel um when we do the pick list um but yeah no just to kind of echo that it's it's just been so so brilliant to hear from uh, from all of you out there um who got in touch and and um said lots of really nice things about the podcast we love doing it and we're super excited to come back on the 18th of September and uh, and and you know give you more grocery news and discussion um I am actually going to uh, use our break for a little experiment. Um, So I will use the time that we would normally have uh, used for recording the pick list to hold open office hours once a week. Um, So that means anyone can book a 30 minute slot with me for a phone call or Zoom conversation during that time and just have a chat about uh, whatever you'd like within reason. It's professional you know, but, um, but yeah, I've, I've really missed the kind of slightly idle random conversations that you used to get at industry events and just seeing people face to face. I miss that. And I've um, heard lots of people experiment with open office hours. So I really want to see if, uh, if it works for me and if it opens up um, conversations I wouldn't be having normally. So yes, if anyone wants to have a random 30 minute chat with me at some point in August, um, the link and all the details are on juliaglotz.com and I'll also put them in the show notes. I'm tempted to book in because I might be missing you, but um, you'll probably cancel me out. So I, I, I promise I won't. I'll, pre- I'll pre-screen for you. <laughs> pre-screen. I'm really excited to hear how that goes. And it's something I might give a try, actually, uh, if uh, if it goes well. Um, one thing we should also mention is we've already got some guests lined up um, for our September and some of our October shows, actually. So if any of our listeners would like to be a guest on the pick list, uh, let us know and we'll get you booked in over the summer for when we get started again on the 18th of September. September. 
Absolutely. But for the time being, we do have episode 14 to be getting on with. And it's a really great one. We were so thrilled to have Tessa Stewart on the show with us. Uh, Tessa describes herself as a professional shopper stalker, which is the best job title I have come across. Um, but she's um, so knowledgeable, really, really long background in, in the food and uh, grocery industry, and does some really interesting in-store research with shoppers. So she has had uh, really a front row seat during the pandemic on um, on how shopper behavior has changed and uh, she brought super interesting articles for us to discuss um, and also offered some fantastic insight on the articles that we chose. Should we start the show? Tessa welcome to the show it's so lovely to have you on. It's lovely to be here Julia and Laura thank you very much for inviting me. Could you just very briefly introduce yourself and just tell our listeners who you are and how you're connected to the food industry? I'm Tessa Stewart and I've been involved in the food industry for many years. I started out doing focus groups for companies like Nestle and Cadbury and developing chocolate bars and looking at yogurt flavours. And then I went freelance and continued doing similar for challenger brands. And now I'm totally specialised and I do shopper research, which is where I go into the supermarket and I swoop on shoppers and ask them what they're buying and why they're buying it and look at how they're choosing amongst the choices in the fixture. And I work with people from Unilever to Jimmy's Ice Coffee to Grey's and lots of companies in between. And I know you have a really fascinating perspective on what's happening in food and grocery retail as a result. And we were so excited to see the articles that you picked for us as well. Really juicy picks that will give us plenty uh, to discuss. Why don't you tell us um, about your first article? So my first article is about Amazon Fresh extending their availability in the UK. So hitherto they've been running in a more limited way and now they're really going for it. And I think this follows on from the increase in online grocery shopping that's happened and they obviously want a bigger piece of that. But the really interesting thing I think about Amazon is obviously they have that incredible capability on delivery, on fulfillment, and they, I've been reading all around this topic and the thing that really fascinated me is they're after the grocery shopping, but where it starts to make money is if people add in a few extra things along the side. And that is fascinating because obviously the other grocers can do that, but not in the way that Amazon can. Uh, and they should all be quaking in their boots, I think. They're in it for the long haul and they will want a chunky slice. I think what is interesting is I went on and had a look at Amazon Fresh. Now I'm an Acado girl and I really like how Acado do it. I and mean, they also have Acado Zoom, which I use because it's in the area and it's super fast. It is so fast. You can order almost within the hour. We've also got uh, Waitrose Rapid coming into the market. So it's that kind of last mile delivery. And I asked the Ocado Zoom guy how they do it. And he said they have a fully automated robot system in the warehouse near, near me. And he said at the time it takes, when your order comes in, it takes 18 minutes to pick it with robots and have it ready to drive out the door. 
Now that is incredible. Now some of the other delivery services are still picking manually in store and I see them, I see how slow that is. So, you know, if Amazon are using a similar um, automated system, then that is a real threat. It's a real threat to the other contenders. I think it's fascinating, and um, and I think it's obviously had a lot of coverage in in pretty much every um, publication out there. I think the um, the article that you picked in particular was a piece from the Guardian, if I, if I remember correctly. But it really has been everywhere because, as you say, I think it's potentially such a strong challenge to um, to to the other retailers in that space. I also think the timing is um, is rather interesting, isn't it? Because we have seen this massive boom in online grocery um during the pandemic and it's perhaps created a little bit of hope that as a wider set of demographics more customers are getting used to online shopping are discovering it are making it part of their routine that perhaps this could open the doors to um, profitability on online grocery services which of course are notoriously unprofitable or difficult to achieve profitability on and just as we're sort of starting to have conversations about, oh, is click and collect potentially a way to, to make that more profitable? Here comes Amazon spoiling the party with, um, you know, I think they I saw a quote in, in some of the coverage from, uh, uh, from Waitrose saying it really is the nuclear option. I mean, if you are essentially making um, grocery delivery free, you are yeah. not leaving a lot yeah. of space for any of your competitors. So, um, yeah, yeah. It's, I think fascinating and and. The timing, I think, is particularly intriguing. And the other thing that I'm seeing in store when I go in to do my shopper research is that people are actually frightened to be in a supermarket. So I have met people recently on my last project, people who hadn't been into the supermarket since March. And one of them said to me, she was a young girl. She wasn't kind of old or, you know, in any way kind of at risk. Or she didn't seem to me to be to me. And she said, basically, I am here. I will not touch any brands I don't know. I am in here to pick up familiar brands. I will not be browsing. I will not be treating the shopping trip in the way that I used to at all. And I thought that was really striking because this level of fear is gonna stop people returning to the supermarket. It's gonna make it an uncomfortable atmosphere when they do go. I mean, I personally, when I go in there, I have to write everything down because there's a piece of my brain that is occupied keeping me safe and moving me away from other people. And I'm sure other people feel this as well, that I see people shopping from lists just in this planned way. And it means that the browsing that we used to see, which is how people stumbled across new products, I think there's going to be less browsing because people are not so relaxed. It's a, it's a great point and I, I really enjoyed the article and there was a couple of bits in there uh, that really uh, jumped out. The, the commentary in there about it being a postcode lottery at the moment in terms of Amazon Fresh and uh, Ocado Zoom, as you've mentioned, Tessa. For, for me, up in the northeast of England, this feels like an alien uh, experience to be able to get shopping so quickly. So it's amazing to hear you were uh, experiencing it firsthand and how potentially the, the Morrisons tie-up will, will help some of the, the fulfilment challenges they've got. But there, there was a piece in the article, wasn't there, about... Um, 
will people be really loyal to their existing supplier and will that challenge them then to actually move and will that be a barrier for Amazon Fresh to get uh, customers because people are loyal to whoever their, their current supermarket is? And I, I think, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that because I think because of what we've been through uh, in the light of COVID and people have just been on occasion just desperate to get food i know anecdotally you know my parents for example they've changed their supermarket because that's who they can get an online delivery from they're yeah. not really bothered yeah. that they're not where they used to be they're just happy yeah. to be getting food and it to be coming and not how as you say not experiencing a supermarket when maybe folks don't necessarily want to so i, I think the time is absolutely right for amazon fresh because i don't think people are brand loyal necessarily as much as they used to be to their yeah. traditional supermarket and as you say knowing where everything is in the store and all the rest of it that's gone out the window there's a new game now well I think that had gone out the window before um, because whenever I talk to people and I, I interview them in Tesco and they say well actually I shop everywhere and I know which where I can get things depending on where I am now obviously that mobility that we had to shop and pop in here and there and everywhere you know, that's slightly more restricted, I think, as we're not traveling around so much. Um, but I do, I, I, so I was seeing that loyalty, apart from my mum, who was like an avid Waitrose shopper. Um, I was just seeing that breaking down a bit anyway, because people are much more opportunistic. And I think what this has done when it's forced you to go somewhere you wouldn't ordinarily have gone has really broken that down, as you say. Julia, what's your first article this week? So my first pick this week is from the New York Times, and it's an article called Of Wine, Hand Sanitizer and Heartbreak, and it was written by Adam Nossiter. This is the story of how the pandemic has hit winemaking communities in the Alsace area of France. We know, of course, that coronavirus has been devastating for many producers in many parts of the world. Um, but this piece really caught my eye because of how effectively and evocatively it brought to life the human cost of the pandemic and the impact that's uh, had on, on individual producers. Because knowing the stats, knowing that the wine market has collapsed and some winemakers are facing a 70% uh, loss of sales, that is one thing. Uh, it's quite another to read about the psychological impact this is all having on producers. The sense of personal shame that many of these winemakers in Alsace are feeling for finding themselves in this situation. Um, so briefly, what is happening in Alsace? In short, it's been hit by a perfect storm. The uh, economic crisis brought on by COVID, in particular, of course, the near collapse of the restaurant market, combined with Donald Trump's 25% tax on French wines, has essentially ended the wine market or collapsed the wine market for the time being. And um, winemakers simply cannot get rid of their wine. It's sitting in cellars, unsold, just as the 2020 harvest uh, is looming. And it's forcing these winemakers in Alsace, many of whom are you know, running small family-owned wineries, to do something that they would normally never consider and something that many see as an insult to the hard work, heritage and craft um, of, of their wines. 
which is that they're having to sell their wine off to the local distillery so it can be boiled down to alcohol and then used to make hand sanitizer because that literally is the only outlet open to them at this time. It's the first time in the history of Alsace that the region's winemakers have had to resort to this form of crisis distillation. And now because of this perfect storm of COVID, of economic crisis, of you know, no, no sales through restaurants or very limited sales and Trump's trade war, more than six million litres of wine from the region will be boiled down to alcohol. Um, there is government support available, the article makes that clear. Um, winemakers are getting a level of compensation um, for the wine, but of course it doesn't in any way really reflect the, the normal market value of these wines. Um, but again, for me, this was all about the people involved and just hearing them talk about how heartbreaking an experience this has been for them. Uh, there's Marion Borez, for example, whose family business is sending 30% of its production to the distillery this year. She says, um, it's like you are saying goodbye to somebody who is very dear to you. And then her mother um, says, these are vines that we fuss over the whole year round. We do everything by hand, and now this, terrible. And, and the other sort of final quote here from Guillaume Klaus, another winemaker, he says, clearly this is tearing me up. It's three years of work, and we're not even paid properly. So it's an incredibly powerful and incredibly moving article. And I thought a valuable reminder that although we are no longer talking about crisis measures on a day-to-day -day basis and the focus has shifted uh, towards the new normal, towards what comes next, this pandemic continues to cast a long shadow over the food sector. And often it's small producers, small family-owned producers that end up bearing the brunt of it. Tessa, what did you make of it? I was so moved by it. I was gripped from the opening sentence and as you say the human cost which we we find it easy to forget I mean I'm aware of small producers that I've bought from during lockdown who sell um, organic Prosecco and they had no market and they just tweeted we've got all these little event bottles of Prosecco that we can't shift and I said I'll have them I like I like small bottles of Prosecco little mini ones um, uh, but, you know, the, the devastation to this particular person's business of, of just literally not knowing when restaurants and bars wherever were going to open up again. So on a small scale, I could kind of feel that pain. But you, the article was, you know, by the end of it, I wanted to run to Alsace and say, just, you know, I'll, I'll buy it. I'll, I'll buy the wine, just whatever we can do to save you, because it was it was so movingly written. I thought it was a fascinating, fascinating article, and I didn't quite um, appreciate the ta U.S. tariffs on French wine at twenty five percent, and I guess the reliance on that market for them is just just absolutely huge. And then the marketeer in the back of my mind's thinking, you know, can they do anything to differentiate um, hand sanitizer? You know, that's such a commodity product now. Can there be a, a premium? provenance related hand sanitizer that people are prepared to pay a bit more for that's what was t ticking away in the back of my mind because it feels such a shame for that amazing product yeah totally and, and I think there is something about having your 
beautiful wine turned into hand sanitizer yeah. that is just so awful. Um, I, I think that it was that image for me that that really brought home just how horrific an experience this has been for producers. It's it's the perfect insult in a way, isn't it, to have this uh, this beautiful wine turned into a, a, absolutely an essential product, and um, and of course it's uh, you know perhaps some solace that it as hand sanitizer it, it doesn't go to waste completely, but still you know no self respecting. A winemaker would ever want their wine to be considered, um, you know, ingredient for hand sanitizer. So, yes, I, I think it's just a I think these stories are so important at the moment, still, especially as we are coming out of that crisis phase of the pandemic. And um, the cost is is huge. And producers who have been hit like that, they are going to need our support for many, many years to come. This isn't a problem that's just going away. Nora, what's your first article this week? Uh, my first pick this week is from The Grocer and it's uh, written by Karina Perkins and it's entitled Is Violence, Violence Against UK Shop Workers Getting Worse in the Pandemic? And we've seen a lot of articles about this and we've touched on it in previous shows about um, the pressure on shop workers um, in the light, light of COVID. But uh, the article gives a bit of background, which I was really interested in. Um, and really, this is triggered by the news that Co-op is uh, supplying frontline staff at 250 stores with body-worn cameras in response to the crime and violence epidemic in retail. And when you think of that and, you know, retail being um, something that should be hopefully at best en enjoyable, that's what we want it to be. And to think, gosh, shop workers are having to wear body worn, ca body -worn cameras like uh, the police is it's quite frightening. And, and the article gives a bit of detail. So it talks um, in March, the British Retail Consortium Retail Crime Survey revealed incidents of violence and abuse against shop workers rose 424 per day in and then period from April 18 to uh, March 19, up 9% from the previous year. The increased use of weapons, particularly knives, remained a worrying trend, said the BRC. The same month, um, there was a crime report found that 83% of people that worked in convenience sector had been subjected to verbal abuse over the last year, with an estimated 50,000 incidents of violence a quarter, which resulted in an injury. So that which absolutely astounded me that that's where the figures were pre-COVID. And then it goes on to say in April of this year, a survey by the trade union um, Usdor found that abuse and violence towards shop workers had doubled since the coronavirus hit the UK in March. Respondents reported to being spat at, coughed at and sneezed at. And when asked customers to practice social distancing, as well as being pushed and verbally abused when trying to enforce buying limits and in, in, on in-demand products. Um, and then finally, in terms of, of the numbers, it says on average, UK retail staff have been verbally abused, threatened or assaulted every week during the crisis compared with once a fortnight for 2019, the report saw. And, you know, me naively in the back of my mind, and I have been in certain retailers when there has been shoppers that have been a little bit angsty, uh, particularly at the beginning of, of COVID when there was shop shopping limits. But I, I hopefully the optimist with inside me thought that this was few and far between. But just looking at this data and seeing it, it, it is an actual epidemic in itself. And we're seeing that co-op are taking action here to protect their staff. And as we've 
talked about on, on previous episodes that a lot of these shop workers haven't necessarily thought I want a career in shop work they've they, they've landed there because they, they they want to feed their family and they want to do a great job and they've really stepped up to the plate and put themselves on the front line uh, particularly when, when um, we've been really short of food and to be I guess repaid in this way that they've felt physically uh, under pressure is, is absolutely shocking um, where this is going and, and as I say co-op are leading this and I would have thought that hopefully the, the other retailers will, will come on board is there's a shopper workers bill which is due to have its second reading uh, probably in September it's been postponed um, and this will look to uh, change the uh, sentencing for harsher penalties uh, when shop workers are, are abused in store uh, but Karina finishes the article by saying in the meantime the onus is on supermarkets and store owners to protect their staff meaning we could see more technology such as co-ops new cameras rolled out across the retail sector in the months to come and you just think at the end of the day we're getting you know more automation and, and we've spoken about that um, particularly for the home delivery sector although still a lot of it is in store picked but retail really relies on people and great people to be able to work in in stores and and to serve the general public and if they feel not only under pressure but potentially under attack as well god that, that that's such a worry to be able to get talent into, into our sector as well tessa i'm really intrigued what you were saying at the beginning of the show you know about how you're spending more time in retail now how, how what have you seen now you're going back into store are people you know just a bit more angsty and taking it out on shop workers and have you seen that trend change over you know the the, the last couple of years with the amount of time you spend in stores well, I normally go into big stores, which tend to be quite well managed in the main. So I'm not popping into the, the kind of the local stores. I have the highest respect for people who work in retail. I think it's really tough. It's hard. You've got to deal with shoppers who, you know, they are a law unto themselves. And they always manage to generally be cheerful and collegiate. And certainly that that's what I've seen over the, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years I've been doing in-store stuff. And I just, it actually breaks my heart to hear that this is how they are being treated, particularly as you say, when Laura, when they've absolutely stepped up to the plate and been such key workers. Yeah. Do you think, Julia, it's a, a small store issue more so than as it pulls out in the article, it's convenience and it's these smaller footprint stores, which now we're probably shopping in more of because we want to maybe get an on online delivery and a little top up that, that they, they are actually the, the stores that are going to have to put this tech in to make sure they're protecting their teams. I certainly think that it's the smaller stores that seem to be more of a, a, a flashpoint um, for that. And I think, you know, it's no coincidence that you're seeing a, a retailer such as the co-op um, lead on, on this debate and, and really, you know, push um, not just for technology and equipment to protect its staff, but also um, for the right signals from policymakers and politicians um to, to be assured that this is being taken seriously, because I think that is also part of the equation, as, you know, as Karina points out in, in the article. Of course, you need progressive employers um, like the co-op embracing new technology and, and just making pragmatic decisions and investments to make sure staff are protected. But it is immensely frustrating that retailers um, and, and organisations such as the you know, ACS and the BRC 
are having to lobby so hard just to see this be recognised as an actual issue that deserves um, special attention. Um, I really hope that in the wake of, of COVID and, and, and the extraordinary response we've seen from the retail sector, they're finding this a little bit easier. But you know, judging by that article, it doesn't sound overly promising. Tessa, tell us about the second pick you brought for us. So the second pick is again about online and it's about direct consumer sales. And I was really struck by this because I'm used to the smaller brands that I work with um, selling direct. And I know that a lot of them have ramped up their capabilities and really put a focus on that. And that the ones who've not had a direct consumer operation have had to acquire one pretty darn quick in this uh, COVID scenario. But I did think that the big companies like Pepsi and Heinz didn't really, you know, they didn't need to do that because, I mean, they're, they're ubiquitous, they're everywhere, they're on all the online operations and they're in all the retailers. So you just don't really think of them selling direct. Um, but basically, Heinz have set up this funny little operation, a platform called Heinz to Home. So you can buy all your favorite Heinz beans and Heinz products direct to your door. So that's happening in the UK at the moment. And this Economist article, I, I just found it fascinating because it's actually speculating about why are they doing this? I mean, I know from going into stores that the numbers of shoppers in stores are now being restricted. So Sainsbury have half as many shoppers in the stores as they had, but those shoppers are buying twice as much. So clearly when you've got the social distancing going on, there is an impact on the volume of people in the store and hence the rate of sale of product. Um, but I didn't think that it would drive people like Pepsi and Heinz to set up a direct consumer uh, channel. So there's speculation in this interesting article about it, that they are in fact using it for data. And again, it wouldn't occur to me that Pepsi would have any problem getting customer data. I mean, they must buy everything that's going. They must be extremely experienced. Um, but apparently they can get data, says their head of global e-commerce, when they launch their online shop. We can get data on what people are doing versus what they say they will do. Uh, which is a topic that's close to my heart, having done for years focus groups where people recall their behaviour, usually highly inaccurately, as compared to how they actually behave when you see them in store shopping a fixture. So I can kind of get that, but I'm still surprised that they don't have reams of data coming out of their ears. But I know from my little challenger brands that one of the useful things that you can do is you can test you can launch products, you can see how people react to them. It's a very quick and iterative way of um, testing things, which you can then put into retail. So I suspect that the reason for doing this is thinking we're going to have a little bit of that. I mean, I've talked with Unilever and they are very much into lean methodologies and getting stuff done faster and kind of moving away from these cumbersome NPD operations that they've been running. So I suspect that Pepsi are doing similar here. You know, what can we do quickly? What can we test? Yeah, I, I thought it was a fascinating piece. And it's it's interesting, I think, that the um, economist is is taking the data acquisition angle on this as well. 
I remember writing an article about direct-to-consumer selling, gosh, probably about three or four years ago now, back when um, lots of people still refer to it as disintermediation, which is a, an awful <laughs> word to try and get into a headline, as I quickly discovered. Um, but and, and I think even at that time, um, data was a really important part of the story. I think, um, as you say, particular way having that first-hand data can inform NPD processes I think is just so so valuable and I think with some of these big um, you know FMCG giants there's also an element of yes we have lots of data but why not have more why you know if there is a it's so you know the, the margins are so wafer thin and it's all about trying to get a little bit of an edge on on consumer behavior. Yeah. I can completely yeah. see that actually, why wouldn't you also want to have that kind of data? You know, yes, it might not be a massive outlet for you, but um, you know, if, if you can potentially get an edge from it, it's so easy to set up uh, these operations mm. now. Uh, I mean, the article talks about Shopify having um, played such a such a central role in the in the Heinz direct to consumer store as well. And I think it's interesting that we're seeing more coverage of Shopify more generally in the press. You know. Because they are, I think, facilitating a lot of these um, direct-to-consumer moves in FMCG at the moment. But yeah, I think it's it's fascinating to see some of these experiments. Always interesting to see, you know, how long they actually do stick around um, and get maintained. I think with in direct-to-consumer, you see a lot of agile moves you see a lot of experimentation but you also see a lot of projects very sort of quietly um being wound down as well so i'll be watching with interest to see what happens with the heinz and and those yeah. two pepsico um <laughs> websites as well but uh yeah certainly really interesting to see that being um something that's now very firmly part of many fmcg company strategies I was interested as well in the article that gave a, a couple of examples, non-food examples, didn't it? Uh, clothing in particular. And the, the uh, stat it gave about Nike, that 30% of Nike's revenue now is coming from direct to consumer. And they weren't actually targeting to get to that level till 2023. And the, how COVID's probably fast-tracked that and other brands like Lululemon and uh, other sort of uh, athletic wear products. And you think, yeah, isn't that amazing where they can just... Uh, d deliver that but what would it what does it mean for them probably better websites more personalization online influencers and that whole I guess marketing mix needs to be taken mm. out of um, uh, mortar and, uh, and actual stores and onto digital more so and it'll be really interesting to see how they uh, evolve that I always think of people like Mrs Hinch as well in that, this space where you know big influencers more so back onto the FMCG piece and uh, sort of a, a P&G ambassador how easy it is for folks with 4 million followers that can just do an easy swipe up and then that direct to consumer buying how easy that is yeah. rather than spending a huge amount on uh, on different channels so one to watch for sure yeah and also we're all kind of working from home lockdown there's no issue with delivery we're always in but you know does that get more complex if if and when we go back to work if we do because at the moment you can, I mean, I order coffee from one supply, you know, like tea from another. We order bread from a farm in Devon. 
and we never think about whether anybody needs to be in to receive it because there are three of us working from the house so it's just not an issue whereas before it would have been a slight hassle you know somebody would have had to stay in and be around for these things so i think that's an interesting thing that might just persist with more of us being at home people will just get used to ordering speciality things because it's you know why wouldn't you it kind of livens up your day to answer the door some nice package arrives i mean we've become complete junkies here you know the doorbell is ringing constantly it's like christmas every day yeah exactly what's uh, your second pick julia my second pick this week is uh, from Mold, which is a publication that focuses on the future of food. They often feature really quite interesting offbeat projects and reports that you don't necessarily get to hear about on more mainstream publications. So it's a title that I like to keep an eye on. Um, the article I've chosen from Mold is titled Cologne's Edible City Plan is a Roadmap for Cultivating Local Food Ecologies. And it was written by John P. Casiom. Now, it's about a really quite radical plan to make the city of Cologne edible. What does that mean? Well, it means essentially using the city for urban agriculture. Um, this involves anything from using green spaces uh, for food production to fostering local food economies, improving access to regional food products and creating local green jobs associated and related to food production. Um, at the heart of all of these efforts um, is, is a desire to ultimately create more affordable, healthier food for local communities and also reconnect citizens in urban areas to food production. The um, concept itself, this sort of edible city idea, isn't unique to Cologne. It's not something they've come up with. It's been explored in other cities around the world. New York, Rotterdam, San Francisco, Berlin, quite a few examples. Um, but Cologne looks like it's especially committed to the idea and it's pushing forward with uh, some really innovative work that I think is worth paying attention to. Partly they are able to push forward with this because they have a dedicated food policy council um, and they've managed to secure some government funding for this edible city concept. Crucially, this food policy council has also uh, created its plan for Cologne's edible city status in partnership with local communities and through extensive consultation, town hall meetings, workshops with citizens, um, so that everyone actually feels they are involved in shaping the food future of their city rather than it being a sort of plan that's being imposed from above. And it also sounds like they've managed to be pretty good at securing support for the project across the political spectrum. Um, I think this is really interesting um, because these sorts of ideas, you know, urban agriculture, they have been in the works for a long time. We've heard about various models um, around the world, including in, in the UK. Todd Morden is a sort of um, really uh, prominent example. But it's suddenly gained 
additional currency and relevancy because of the pandemic, because self-sufficiency, bringing food production closer to consumers, moving towards more circular food systems, these are all topics that are suddenly being looked at through a rather different lens now that we have gone through this um, period of extraordinary supply chain disruption. Um, so I think it's it's going to make policymakers, um, but also potentially um, feed and farming industry, look at these sorts of opportunities that are emerging around cities in particular, um, and and how in in a bit more detail. Um, so an initiative like this, which I think even a few months ago would probably have been pretty niche, sounds a little bit you know hippie potentially, and um, suddenly actually looks really topical, um, really relevant, uh, really well placed to sort of be part of the debate around building a more resilient uh, food system that can better cope with uh, future shocks. So I suspect we're going to hear about these sort of city initiatives uh, much, much more than we have until now. And I think, yeah, Cologne, I wouldn't have had Cologne on the map as a city that sort of leading the way on, on, on that front. Uh, but I was very grateful for this article, um, for, for sort of raising my awareness and pointing out that they're doing some really interesting work in that area. I was fascinated by this because I nearly got involved in a project recently with St Thomas's Charitable Trust to look at how to improve the diets of inner city um, poorer deprived populations. And reading that Cologne article, I thought, how transformative would it be on the day that the food strategy has been launched to try and improve people's health if there was some initiative whereby you had subsidized fruit and veg, because it's fine putting calorie counts on things, but there have been studies that say that people actually shop where they see the red markings on the pack indicating high fat because they know it's going to taste good. So, you know, there's these things on, it's actually about making affordable alternatives on the ground around in these deprived areas. And I did some work for the National Consumer Council. We went to the 10 most deprived areas of the UK. And I realized that these are food deserts. People don't have access to good food. And the middle class is always trot out, oh, if only they knew how to make, you know, how to cook vegetables. And it's absolute bollocks. It's because these other things are cheaper and more accessible when you can't afford a bus ride to go anywhere else and have more choice. So it's a subject that's kind of close to my heart after that experience of going into these incredibly deprived areas where people are contending with a lot of other issues as well. And somebody's saying to them, well, improve your diet, you know, when they're, they're living from, you know, pay packet to pay packet and a tiny little thing will throw them off balance. And then their whole economy, household economy is out, is out the window and they are not eating, you know? So it's, I think, that Cologne initiative, if we could translate that into a really active movement like Todd Morden within urban areas that really, really need it, where it's not just a middle-classy thing that's nice to have, but it's actually, here's a shop full of vegetables and they are subsidized and this is how you cook them. And here we go, come and get involved. You know, I just think there is so much more to be done. 
When I saw the headline about Edible City, I was thinking about Charlie and the Chocolate, chocolate Factory because of the sugar addict in me. Now I was thinking, great, are we going to go to Cologne and snap bits off and be able to eat it? But when I got to the second line, I, I realised it was a bit more strategic than that. Uh, but, but, but you're right, in terms of that potential for cultural shift, and, and you're right to mention the uh, National Food Strategy, Tessa, and you know the announcements about the war on obesity this week and all of that is only going to happen if we make a huge cultural shift that is all inclusive, not just for, for certain people, but for all. And, and you're right that, that it, this isn't just about food. This is about the way that people live and the challenges that people have and making changes to, to, to all of that, not just saying don't eat so much sugar or don't go to the chicken shop when you're on the way back from school or whatever, because mm. actually that might be the only meal that they can afford that day. Yeah. So um, hugely challenging and hugely inspirational as well to see that the Germans have got 30 of these initiatives and in, in, um, in terms of these food councils and, and Cologne really setting the, the benchmark. Dora, what's the um, second article you brought for us this week? My second pick this week is from Food Manufacture and it's called Sausage Maker Shifts to Compostable Packaging. And this is about Westaway Sausages and uh, they're a Devon-based uh, sausage manufacturer and they've shifted to 100% uh, compostable packaging and they're reportedly the first sausage producer to do so in the UK. So they're reporting to be the first, which really interests me because we've got some huge big sausage producers in the UK and if they're the first that have shifted on this um, they're, or at least first to get a lot of splash around the PR um, and they're talking about that they'd already had recyclable cardboard uh, certified by the forestry stewardship in it, um, uh, for its sausage packaging and it's interesting because they're a brand in this market of, of the meat sector that we know is, is heavily um, own label and there's not a lot of brands so it shows a, a picture of, of what that looks like and then the the article goes on to talk about you know how important it is that having this uh, product uh, particularly in, in, light of, in light of wastage and reducing plastic um, but picking away at this a little bit more and this article is a little bit older and I've uh, been chatting to, to a couple of contacts and I was really interested to find out one of the triggers of this isn't just the UK market and our drive to be more sustainable it's actually their exports. So Westaway Sausages um, export a lot to the Bahamas and the Bahamas won't allow any plastic packaging into, into their country imported because of their uh, waste challenges um, and keeping sustainable as possible. So by Westaway making this shift, it's allowed not only to have a differentiation on the UK market, but allow them to keep a premium uh, export market as well, which I've thought is really nifty for a relatively small company and a small player in in such a, a huge global market. Do, do you see any other challenger brands doing this, Tessa, doing something really niche in a market that is arguably quite commodity-based and quite price-driven and to do something to differentiate on packaging, example? Well, I've just worked with Little Dish, who are um, ready meals for toddlers, um, and basically they have taken their packaging, they had bespoke packaging, it was expensive, and they have gone to um, completely recycled packaging. So it's called Evolve and it's a kind of strange greeny, browny colour. And you'll see it if you go into a Sainsbury's, that Sainsbury's have put all their own label into it in their ready meals. And so I did a test with consumers to see if they 
noti would notice the difference. So we took some mock-ups in and grabbed some mums and said, what do you think? And actually what was really interesting was that the mums were so conscious of the plastic waste that they were creating through wipes and through nappies, through buying, even buying plastic toys for their kids, that they were just like, oh my God, this is amazing. I would feel so much better. They embraced it completely and utterly, which was, was great for my client who was a little concerned about what it would do to you know, a premium brand. Um, and people were like, no, do it immediately. This would make me feel so much better about buying the brand. So it, that was interesting, you know, interesting to see that happening with consumers so ready to embrace a change. Yeah, I think it's an it's a it's an interesting story, and I I love the insight that you have brought to this because, as you say, um, I think it's been we we've known about this move for some time, but it immediately makes you look at what they're doing through a completely different lens now that you know that it's actually not just about the UK market, but it's a a, a pretty clever move to try and uh, position themselves in an export market as well. Because the temptation is always, you know, we're, we're trying to have a really kind of broad perspective on things and. Um, and and bring that international perspective in as well but you sort of inevitably just assume that the primary driver is whatever is happening in the UK market when you're looking at a UK based brand like that so um i really like that i think that's a, a really nice a nice bit of insight i think bioplastics and the sort of whole biodegradable compostable um area is 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 really interesting because there was obviously a fair bit of controversy or a discussion around, you know, is that the right way to go? Um, does it actually uh, produce better environmental outcomes versus um, reusable or recyclable packaging? Um, so I think it's interesting that they have gone down the compostable, the kind of bioplastics um, route. And I think it was an interesting article in The Times over the weekend as well about a company that's really pushing forward with some very innovative bioplastics or biodegradable plastics. Um, so it feels like that is a, a topic that is um, perhaps gaining um, new currency um, again. So certainly interesting to see them uh, commit to that and actually make sustainable packaging a really central part of their USP now. But yeah, also fascinating to hear that um, that it was sort of inspired very heavily by uh, the demands of their export market. Tessa, it has been so lovely to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me on. I mean, it's such an interesting podcast. It's so wide ranging and you cover topics from such interesting angles with the expertise that you both have. I, I find it constantly stimulating and interesting to listen to. So I, I would like to say well done. I'm continually recommending the pick list. Thank you so much, Tessa. And I've absolutely loved hearing your in-store insight. It's making me feel I need to get out and get around a few more retailers to see what everyone's up to. Lovely to um, see you both. And um, thank you very much for inviting me on. That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe, give it a rating and leave a review. It makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the food industry who'd enjoy listening to The Picklist. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.